Those that remain in the auditorium and are watching online, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Leviticus, as we have gotten used to doing, and chapter 13, Leviticus and chapter 13. I heard a few comments that individuals thought that maybe I was being a little bit too hard on Pastor Luke by saddling him with Leviticus chapter 12. However, those of you that have read ahead to Leviticus chapter 15 understand that my task in four Sundays is far worse. However, we are here together in Leviticus 13, and I believe God has much for us from this passage. There is much in this passage. It has to do with skin diseases. Your Bible may say leprosy and may even have a heading of this chapter of laws concerning leprosy. That comes from the Greek word lepra, and so the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and yet the actual word in Hebrew simply means any defiling skin disease. Some scholars believe there's as many as 21 different types of skin irregularities that are addressed in this passage, as well, of course, in the back part of the passage, what happens when something infects an article of clothing? What do we do then? And certainly from verses 47 through 59, it cannot be a disease of leprosy because it is not in a human body. And so any sort of skin disease is what chapter 13 is addressing. There are, as mentioned, 59 verses, and we're only going to read two off the top, verses 45 and 46. So please turn there, if you would, Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This is the word of God. Prior to COVID-19, I'm not sure how many of us could have resonated with this individual, but I'm sure for any of us who have coughed in public in the last two years, we understand perhaps a little bit about what this individual was going through, and we will get there in just a moment. Our first point this morning then is life lived in a fallen world. The reality is there is not only sin in the sense of that which is immoral, that which is against the law of God, that which diminishes his holiness and is an act of rebellion against him. There is sin from a moral perspective, but there are also the effects of sin, living in a fallen world. And as Pastor Luke brought out last week, to be unclean in the book of Leviticus is not necessarily a moral reality, but is more of a ritualistic reality. Uncleanness then in this passage and in 11 through 15 and in the book 
is ritual, not moral. An individual with psoriasis has not committed any sin, and yet psoriasis and other skin disorders point to the reality that life is not as it was originally created to be. There's something wrong. There will not be any skin diseases in the eternal state. Skin irregularities, the particular topic of our particular chapter this morning, are markers of the curse of sin on the world in general. Let me try to illustrate this concept of uncleanness with a story from my youth. One of the homes that my family lived in in Nova Scotia had a living room that the ceiling went all the way to the roof. There was a second story in the house, two-thirds of the home, but the third that was the living room, the ceiling went all the way up to the roof. And so you went up the stairs, and then there was a landing that went across the back part of the living room that opened out onto the living room. And so one summer, two of our cousins were visiting, my older brother and I, and our cousins are about the same age as us. My mother took the younger children to uh, another part of Nova Scotia for VBS and left the home in the care of four adolescent males. Now, there's a couple problems with being an adolescent male. One is that your inner voice is set to a very low volume, and you ignore even that. And so one of my cousins said one of the days that we were house-sitting, That'd be really cool to jump off that landing. And we were all like, yeah. That would be. In fact, we were thinking the same thing, but it took you visiting to really kind of bring that to our attention. And so we gathered up all the pillows in the entire house. And I'm one of eight children, so there were lots. We unzipped all of the sleeping bags that we could find to lay over top. We had the couch cushions as a good solid foundation. And in our young male brains, this was an amazing idea. So we transformed the living room with this sort of landing pad for our foolishness. Each of us took a turn on the railing. We started by standing on the railing, but that looked way too high, so then we would sit down. All of us went through, none of us had the courage, and then finally my older cousin jumped off, landed, and was like, that was awesome! And we're like, okay, here we go. My older brother jumped, his foot slipped through the cracks between the pillows and the couch cushions and did some damage to his ankle, so he laid on the couch, minus the cushions, and we jumped over top of him <laughs> in the living room. All of us had our turn, and then that got boring because, again, for young males, even the most exhilarating experience quickly becomes passe, and so now we had to jump like they did in the WWF before that was the World uh, Wildlife Foundation and had to change the WWE, and um, so we were kind of jumping and doing like a belly flop and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, to wrap the story up, as my older cousin was in the corner of the top of the stairs and the landing, 
hanging on like the amazing uh, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man, ready to jump one final time onto this makeshift mattress, we heard the sound of a car on the gravel driveway. Mom is coming home. My cousin leapt off, landed belly flopped onto that mattress, grabbed two sleeping bags in one motion, rolled over and started taking them to where they needed to go. We were firing couch cushions like you wouldn't believe and pillows. And in amazing uh, act of sheer adrenaline, by the time my mother came into the house, she would have no idea that anything had happened. What we were doing, was it sinful? No. Was it stupid? Yes. Did we know that that was an improper use of pillows, couch cushions, and sleeping bags? Did we know that had our mother and certainly my father been there, that that would not have been an approved activity? Yes. That perhaps is the difference between that which is unclean and that which is sinful. Something doesn't match. It's like graffiti on a beautiful marble wall. It's defiling. It's, it's not sinful, but it doesn't fit. It's just, it's not right. It's a marker that something's off, not just within the young male brain. That's uncleanness. And so being unclean is symbolic of sin and its effects. So we dealt with last Sunday, childbirth. We'll deal with skin diseases and other things, 13 and 14, and then into a whole bunch of fun in chapter 15. These things are not moral necessarily. They're not immoral, but they are markers of the reality that the world in which we now inhabit is not the world that was originally created. There's a problem. Things are not perfect as they are originally created to be. And so as you read these passages, do not see uncleanness as sin in and of itself, but do see it as a marker of the effects of sin, as that which shows us and reveals to us, yet again, things are not as they ought to be. Our culture seems to assume that we are inherently good, and we just make the odd mistake. The reality is that we are all the way down to our core sinful. And the effects of that sin are readily seen everywhere you look. Even if you happen to look down on your arm and see some sort of abnormality. What do we notice then in the second place? We need to take sin's effects seriously. There is too much material here to read and really go into the weeds. If you want more information, please stick around uh, at about 11.15 this morning until about noon. I will be here for Q&A. Feel free to ask any question about the text and we will do our best to answer it. But you'll notice some similarities throughout all of these different abnormalities, these defiling skin diseases. The first is, as the individual comes to the priest, one of the first things the priest is looking for is, is this deeper than just the surface of the skin? Is this more than just skin deep? 
And what this shows us, I believe, is that the effects of sin run deep. They're not just surface level realities. They go all the way down. Sin and its effects is not just oops. It's not just a minor issue. It's not just a little mistake. I told a little white lie. No, sin's effects run deep. And the effects of these types of defiling skin diseases that would render a member of the nation of Israel unclean were shown to be more than just a surface lesion. They had penetrated below the surface of the skin. They were a serious problem. Sin is a serious problem. And unless we take it seriously, we are not looking for a solution. And certainly not the only solution, which is Jesus Christ the righteous. Notice in the second place that sin, sin's effects spread. The whole idea of quarantining those who were unclean was to attempt to stop the spread of these defiling skin diseases. They spread throughout the body and the skin of the person who has them and can also spread to others. Sin doesn't sit still. And sin is not committed in a vacuum. We sometimes have the idea, well, this doesn't hurt anybody. No, sin's effects spread. They spread to every part of us and they spread beyond us to others. Sin is contagious, deeply contagious. And so we must be, as John Owen reminds us, killing sin or sin will be killing us. There is no middle ground. Sin spreads and it spreads rapidly. The idea here in this passage of an initial viewing of the skin lesion, of the skin abnormality, a seven-day quarantine followed by a second inspection. All of these things are designed to see, is this spreading? And if it's spreading, it is a picture of the spread, the rapid spread of sin. Therefore, although the person has not committed sin, they are a picture of the rapid spread of sin and therefore are rendered unclean. And so in the third place we see this morning that sin's effects are malignant. Some of you in our church family have had a diagnosis of cancer. You are well aware of this word and what it means. And that is the same with sin. Sin is deadly. It destroys. It should not be toyed around with. It should not be played with. It should not be treated with indifference or apathy. Sin has one goal, to kill you and me. And it must be treated accordingly. All of these skin diseases, so many of them mentioned in this passage, if they render the worshiper, the potential worshiper, unclean, there is a malignancy there. It's a serious reality, like sin is. We let sin go. It's just a little sin. It's not a big deal. 
and then we do more sin and deeper sins. It spreads rapidly. As someone has said, sin will take us farther than we want to go and keep us longer than we want to stay. Sin's effects are malignant. Notice in the third place this morning, then dealing with sin's effects. How is the nation of Israel to deal with these markers of sin? They're not in and of themselves sinful or immoral, but they reveal that things are not as they ought to be. As they bring a sacrifice, it's to be without blemish. A priest could not serve if they had any abnormalities. And so those within the nation of Israel, the same thing. Anyone who bore the markers of sin, the effects of living in a sin-cursed fallen world, could not enter into the presence of God. It had to be removed from the covenant community, had to be outside the camp. How do we deal with this? Notice, if you would, in the first verse, that it is the Lord who speaks to Moses and Aaron. God always takes the initiative. Do not believe that you are the one who took the initiative in attempting to have a relationship with God. The fact that you are here this morning is more evidence of God's grace in your life because God is the one who takes the initiative. God reaches down to us. We are not reaching up for him. He is the one that comes to Moses and Aaron as he has repeatedly through this book and he speaks. This is what is to be done. Notice in the second place that the sufferer responds by going to the priest. There is nothing to be gained from hiding a rash, from hiding a skin disease, a potential uh, malignant skin disorder. The only proper response is that the sinner presents themselves to the priest. Repeatedly throughout this passage, it says the sinner is brought to the priest. The priest is not to leave the environs of the tabernacle and go tent to tent searching for skin lesions. No, the individual who has a skin abnormality, they must then, because of the initiative of God on their behalf, go. They go to the priest. And then in the third place, the priest decides. Again, before COVID, many of us would not have had a ready illustration for this, but I think all of us in this room, or many of us, have jammed a Q-tip up and tickled our cerebral cortex, and then we have mixed in a little liquid, we've put it on that little dot, and then we waited, waited for that liquid to go up that paper in that window to see, will there be two lines or just one? It's a very minor reality, but that's what's going on here. I know that something's off. I just found something. And so I go to the priest, and the priest looks, and the priest decides. We can appreciate that anticipation. Notice, for our purposes, God has already decided that we are sinful. But he's already also provided us a way of escape. Notice then in verses 45 and 46, which is the verses we want to key in on this morning, the results of uncleanness. There is a further change in appearance in the first part of verse 45. The leprous person who already has the marks of a skin disorder on them will tear their clothes and let the hair of their head hang loose. 
There is a physical change, a further physical change. There is a clear demarcation. This person is unclean. And anybody, even from a distance, would be able to see that. In the second place, there is a need to warn others. They had to cover their upper lip, cover their mouth, and cry out, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. I could give you what I have and you don't want this. There is separation. He is unclean, period. He shall live alone, period. That is a hard four words. Everything was covenantal in the nation of Israel. Everything was communal. To live outside of the camp, to be separated from the covenant community was massively problematic. They are separated. And notice in the fourth place, if you would, that these descriptions bear all the markers of someone who mourns. In the Old Testament, when someone was mourning, they would oftentimes tear their clothes. They would not take care of themselves hygienically. They would let their hair hang loose. Their whole energy was in the mourning process. They were in grief, and they gave everything to that. And if you notice the description here, there is markers of mourning. There is grief here. Sin causes destruction, and sin causes pain and separation and grief. Sin is ugly. It is not to be treated lightly. It's awful. It's awful to live separately from everyone else. Now you may be here this morning, and unbeknownst to anybody sitting around you, you may feel the effects of this internally in a way that no one else would know, because this describes you. And you're, you feel it. I have good news. That'd be rough if we ended there this morning. Notice in, in uh, point four, Jesus, our high priest. Throughout all of this, all of this is a picture of what is in the heavenlies. We know this from Hebrews and other parts of the New Testament. The tabernacle is a picture of the throne room of glory, Revelation 4 and 5, Isaiah 6. The high priest is a picture of Jesus Christ, our high priest, whom we read about this morning, even in the liturgy. Notice in the first place, then, and that it's God that takes the initiative. 1 John 4.19, why do we love? Because God first loved. Before God ever spoke anything into existence, he loved you. Before he ever created anything, he loved you. And it was his love that brought his son, Jesus Christ, to become one of us, to go to the cross and bear our sin, the penalty of our sin in his own body on the tree, to become a curse for us, to then rise triumphantly from the dead three days later, which we celebrate every week and are going to celebrate even more through communion this morning. 
And he has then ascended to the right hand of God the Father on high. All of that comes from God. You may be sitting here this morning and saying, yes, I understand that I am a sinner. And how I feel about that is that God hates me. Please understand, God loves you more than you could possibly know. But God does take sin seriously. Read Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was made a curse for us. God does not wink at sin. He does not treat sin lightly. Sin is destructive and divisive. And God knows that. And God does not hover indifferently. He is both transcendent, but he is also imminent. And so he came down to become one of us and lived among us, Jesus Christ the righteous, and saw sin's effects on a moment-by-moment basis. Repeatedly in the New Testament, not just in John 11, Jesus weeps. He has stood at the side of a grave and knows what it is to see the effects of sin. They lead to death. He has stood as the funeral procession comes through and a widow has lost her only son. He knows the effects of death. He has seen the effects of betrayal and greed and jealousy and lust and abuse of power and all of these things. He lived it and he lived among us. And yet he knew why he came. He came to bear sin's full penalty, 1 Peter 2.24, who in his own body bore our sins on the tree. When he was stretched out on that cross, For those three hours when the sky grew palpably dark, Jesus bore the full wrath, the just wrath of God for all of our sin, past, present, and future, in all of its ugliness. You want to see how ugly sin is? Look at the cross. That's how ugly sin is, as we have sung this morning. And then he bowed his head And he said, it is finished. And he rose again that Sunday, almost 2,000 years ago, to prove that it was finished. And so as we wrap up this morning and head into communion, Grace Baptist and all that are watching online, run to Jesus. As the one who had a skin disease, their only hope was to go to the priest. That's your only hope. That's my only hope. Run, not away. Don't run away. Our sin and our guilt leads to shame oftentimes, and we believe that God hates us. We have seen and borne the weight of the judgmentalism of those that bear his name and that is reprehensible and so we think that the only way we can deal with our sin is to run away from God but the only way we can deal with our sin is to recognize that he has dealt with it and run to him. Run to Jesus. What does he say in Matthew 11, 28 to 30? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Come, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I 
I will give you rest. As you read through Leviticus 13, and I hope that you took the time to read it or will take the time to read it in, with great specificity and precision, we see the effects, one of the many effects of sin. And it is not a pretty picture. But the solution is not to hide. The solution is to run to the one who has paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Run to him for forgiveness. Repent of your sin and say, my only hope is Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. Take sin as seriously as God does and run to him who has paid its full penalty. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we can read a passage like Leviticus 13 and it can confuse us. It can perhaps even come across as unnecessary and certainly irrelevant to our day, although the last two years bears a lot of relevance. And yet, Father, when we understand what you are saying to us from this text and from literally every page of your word, you are holy. We are not. You came. Your Son came, the God-man, to be holy for us. So that only through you we can indeed be holy. We are great sinners. And if we're honest, we know that. But there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. And through him and him alone, we can be called your children. We can be called saints. We can be called into relationship with you and be overwhelmed by your love and your peace and your comfort, your contentment and your joy, your compassion and your mercy and your grace and your holiness and righteousness. We may most resonate with the individual described in verses 45 and 46, living in our shame, building an identity there, and almost believing ourselves to be morally superior because everyone else is a hypocrite and we're the only ones who are real. And yet, Father, that just betrays what we already know. We too are hypocrites. We too are sinners. But there is one who loves us more than we could possibly imagine. And who sacrificed himself for us in a way that we could hardly hope possible. But it's true. You love us. And so, Father, help us to run to you and not away. 
the defiling skin disease and its effects in verses 45 and 46 do not ultimately describe one of us, but they describe who your son became for us. He is the one who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the one who went outside the camp, outside the city of Jerusalem, who became a curse for us, became sin for us who knew no sin. He is the one outside the camp who in that moment, those three hours on the cross, bore the weight of, the, of sin so that we never have to be separated from you, Father. We don't have to go outside the camp and to live alone. We can live in communion with you and with each other because of Christ. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Help us to do that. Not just once in our life, but every single day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.